Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the pod, we're commemorating the 1986 July 1st Great American Bass Show in Philadelphia. Why? Because we just passed its anniversary and I was there. First up is Between the Sheets, Chris Zellner. We're going to run down the card, talk about some of the behind-the-scenes machinations at the card, the bash from 1986 in general, some of the issues involving Crockett Promotions and Dusty at the time. And then Chris is also going to recommend us some old-school wrestling to watch online, many of which you can find on one of his many YouTube channels. After that, I'm pulling a Simmons and inviting one of my high school friends on the pod. Why? Because my friend Jim went to the bash in Philadelphia with me. We're going to talk about our memories of the show, watching wrestling as teenagers, and due to his teenage love of Jimmy Snooker the wrestler, we're going to talk about separating the art from the artist after this Jimmy Snooker Dark Side of the Ring episode, plus all the stuff that's going around in current wrestling and other forms of popular culture. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It's a monumental day in wrestling history uh, for me personally, my own personal history, as well as uh, in the history of the business. And I thought a good person to get on to talk about that and maybe some of the other things that are going on. Somebody we've been trying to get on the show for a while, but he's one of the hardest working men in the wrestling podcast business. So I'm happy to finally have him on. And that is Chris Zellner. How's it going, Chris? Oh, pretty good, Mark. How about you? I'm good. I am in the middle of a conveniently timed vacation, so trying to pod. Um, I know you're, between your podcast and uh, your day job, I know you're a hard man to get a hold of sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can say that. I'm trying to have, a, try to have some free time when I can, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It is one of those things, but I enjoy doing all those shows I do, so it's yeah, not well, that big of a deal. Yeah, we'll definitely get to we'll definitely get to talking about that in a little while. But uh, uh, the historical event that I wanted that uh, I mentioned at the top of the show is this is the 34th anniversary of the 1986 Great American Bash, and the first show of the bash that was the first year that they did a tour. And the first show was July 1st, 1986, in Philadelphia at the Vet. And uh, I was there, along with my friend Jim, who we'll hopefully have on the podcast later to talk about this, along, I believe, with my parents, who were the ones that had to drag drag two 16-year-olds to the show and sit through it. But uh, I figured this would be a – you'd be a good person to reminisce with, given – you're down there in Georgia, so you're very familiar with the JCP product, especially in that that time. Yeah, I was uh, almost seven, <laughs> but I was watching it every week. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it was a that, that was a big thing, you know, the the bash, you know, the, the Atlanta bash show was at Fulton County Stadium that year. That was the last show, basically, of the the tour, you, I guess you could say. Um, so 
it ended. It, it began where basically where you were at, and ended basically where I'm at in a way. So yeah. Yeah, this was the uh, they had done for people that uh, don't remember or weren't around. Um, the first bash was at uh, the Charlotte Stadium where Flair wrestled Nikita, and you know there's the they put out the videotape for that, and uh, I remember there was a big special issue of PWI devoted to the bash that year. And then the second year, they decided to take it on tour all around the country and wrestle in stadiums where they could and hit most of the major Crockett markets and some other big-time markets outside the South where they had varying levels of success. Um, the first show that we were th- uh, the show we're talking about with Philadelphia ended up having uh, a gate of it's around 11,000 people. Uh, most, I think Dave said it was 10,900. I know in the in Coronet's book, I think they said it was slightly more. I think Jim has said in the past that it was probably a crowd that would have not would have been too big for the Civic Center, which is when where they ran in Philly. But uh, I remember it being a decent sized show, and it grossed. Well, I guess the 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 gross of this to, the this show has been in debate. Over the years, uh, Cornette has in his book that it was 215,000, which of course was a record for Philly. I believe that may have been slightly disputed over the years. Do you, uh, do you recall that? Uh, Gatewise, not top of my head. Okay, um, I didn't know if that was one of those infamous ones that people always remembered or not. But still, it was certainly a big show for Philly. Um, no, the one of the main ones that gets talked about is Washington D.C. RK, that was a bad one. Yeah, they, um, according to Cornette's book, they said that gate was 135,000 in Canada, but it was only around 1,000 people in RFK stadiums. That that was probably not a good look for them. Uh, no. (laughs) No, I mean, the the whole, it was ambitious to to run this tour for two reasons. A, you're running on these major stadiums and B, you're banking on country music artists to draw big houses in Philadelphia, Washington, DC and other places in the Northeast, especially where it wasn't going to work. And even in the South and it didn't work either. You know, I mean, it's, it's Dusty wanting to, you know, have his friends and be in and have a set up after the show where they can go hang out when to listen to the concert and Dusty get on stage and sing and this, that, and the other. But you no, know, Dave Allen Co. is, is just not going to work <laughs> in a certain part of the country like that. And um, it's just way too ambitious. Yeah. And it, it, it really, it really, it really was a bad decision. Yeah. In Philly, we had. Joe Ely and Delbert McClendon. And I can't imagine that how many people actually at the stadium probably had even heard of them, let alone heard their music. I know I know we did not stay. I'm sure that part of that was that we got to go. That was probably enough. I'm sure my dad was probably not enthused to stay another hour and a half and then drive the hour home after listening. To, I mean, even though he listened to country music, I don't think... I think that I'm sure we had reached his saturation point. 
I mean, it probably would have made sense to book the more famous guys outside the region because you would assume that maybe, maybe Willie Nelson could have drawn, you know, on the fringes of the South in D.C. or in Philly. Because people, people at least knew who Willie Nelson was or Waylon Jennings. But, yeah, Joe Ely, Delbert McClinton, David Allen Coe, probably not big hits in the Northeast. No, I mean, I mean, Del McClinton, he had, I mean, he had some success, but he wasn't a major name in in the, you know, the commercial music business. Now there was Joe Ely. Joe Ely was more of a uh, outlaw country artist. So again, it's people that Dusty liked and wanted to to have their shows. It's just, it's it's not going to work. It's 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 too self indulgent. The Bash Tour is heavily self-indulgent for Dusty. Definitely. So I mean, you basically—I mean, you look at the theme of the tour. It's basically Flair gets all these guys, and and then he defends the title against them, and he wins or loses by DQ some way. So he goes to pretty much the whole roster, and then Dusty beats him. <laughs> not not surprising. No. Yeah, no. we definitely had one of those screwy finishes uh, in Philadelphia, but I'll get to it when we when we get to the main event. But so the card started with the illustrious Barbarian defeating perhaps at the time junior heavyweight champion Denny Brown. Cannot tell you anything about that. Uh, Black Bart defeated Todd Champion. Cannot tell you anything about that. Manny Fernandez defeated Shaska in a bunkhouse match. Don't remember it. That probably was not. That probably was not bad. The first uh, infamous match of the night: Wahoo beat Jimmy Garvin in an Indian strap match. And that shouldn't be surprising since Wahoo <laughs> usually won the Indian strap matches. But it's what happened in the match and then after the match that uh, has become infamous. I'll say. Yeah. Um, what happened was Wahoo bladed again. Not a surprise. Unfortunately, Wahoo got the blade stuck in his forehead. So as you might imagine, <laughs> he he gust he uh, busted a gusher. And Philadelphia and Pens- Pennsylvania has a notorious athletic commission and a notorious athletic commissioner at the time named J.J. Benz, who, when he saw how much blood there was, threatened to shut down the show, which has led people over the years to suggest that uh, he was going to threaten to shut down the show at the first chance he got because he was very friendly with the, uh, the competition, being Vince, who had actually run in Philadelphia only a couple days before that, and J.J. Benz had actually gotten in the ring and been part of an angle. So you can imagine the Crockett guys, when this happened, went crazy. Oh, yeah. And yeah, J.J. Benz, uh, the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission, was losing his mind over all this whole thing, you know. And it's definitely not a good look, for sure. Yeah, up here it's I, I have I have been to a number of shows around here because 
the Philadelphia Commission or the Pennsylvania State Commission was famous, and of course the Maryland Athletic Commission was probably almost as equally famous. I mean, we had you know you had the famous bash a couple years later with the uh, quote-unquote blood stoppage by the Athletic Commission in the Flair Luger match, and well, at least I can I can vouch for when I worked for Maryland Indies, the commission were definitely there, and there definitely was there were uh, definite juice policies because I know once we ran at Fort Meade uh, and since we were running on an army base that was not technically under the jurisdiction of the Maryland Athletic Commission which means there was juice up and down the card because they could get away with it yes <laughs> but that's that's indie, that's indie wrestling for you yeah Absolutely. So, so after that, we had Ronnie Garvin defeating Tully Blanchard in a non-title tape fist match. Um, then you had uh, Six Man with Baby Doll and the Rock and Rolls defeating Cornette and the Midnight Express. The first match of the best of seven United States Championship between Dusty or uh, between Nikita and Magnum, which had been based on an angle where Magnum had been stripped of the title after uh, Nikita and Uncle Ivan insulted Magnum's mother. Magnum got upset, as Magnum often did in these press conferences, and then was going to be suspended by Bob Geigel, and then Magnum got upset and slugged Bob Geigel, and therefore got stripped of the title. So this was the first match in the best of seven for the United States title. And, of course, the way it was booked, the heel won the first match. For people that don't remember, not surprisingly, the heel won the first three matches, and then the babyface won the next three matches to set up the deciding uh, seventh game, as it were, where Nikita won, uh, thanks to uh, Ivan and Crusher interfering, which led to the great line of David Crockett saying, The Russian nightmare has come true, Tony. In only a way David Crockett can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of didn't understand then and still don't understand now why they did the Nikita win three in a row. Other than the fact, I mean, it happened in real sports where, you know, the team would win the first three and then the other team would come back and win the next three or the next four in a row, whatever. But, um, I mean, I, it just wrestling, you don't really see it that way. Um, but, I mean, hey, I mean, it made for, you know, a compelling story as they went along. And uh, the problem was they drug it out because they had a six match. They had the seven match. It had a, a screw finish. And then they, they kept doing that same type of match for a while. until finally doing the actual real finish. So... Yeah, that kind of that kind of wasn't that great, but uh, eh, it I mean, worked. I, yeah, I understand the logic of the heel going ahead. I mean, it's the same logic of why do the heels always win the coin toss when you have a war games match? Because that's just the way it works. But yeah, you don't need to go three zero up and then tie. I mean, you could do heel wins two, babyface wins one, so he's still winning, and then it's three one. So then you're on the verge of losing, and then he wins, and then you get to game seven. But, uh, 
because you know I remember from remember my sports teams usually didn't come back from three one in the World Series or the Stanley Cup, so that was rare. So you know a guy coming back from three one in this tournament would have made sense too. Yeah. So then we have, as I mentioned, uh, Flair defended his title against Road Warrior Hawk, and which had. At the time, I do not believe I had seen this finish before. I certainly, I mean, I had only been watching wrestling for like six months or so, or, or a year, because I didn't, I was not one of those people that watched as a kid. I started watching as a teenager. So, what happened in the the this match was, they're going along, and then there, Tommy Young gets bumped, as you would expect, and then... Um, Hawk had him pinned. I think he. I think after the flying shoulder tackle, and Tommy Young is well. Not surprised. I guess I should say earlier. Not surprisingly, Flair had thrown Hawk over the top rope while Tommy Young was bumped, and then you boom, 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 and you go to the finish, and Hawk has Flair pinned. Tommy Young starts crawling over towards Flair, or towards Flair and Hawk. But as he's crawling, he's crawling as if he's swimming. So it looks like he's actually counting, not crawling. So he's crawling one, crawling two, crawling three. Boom, everybody explodes because it looks like Hawk has won the title. No, as it turns out, Tommy gets up, says no, 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 makes the over-the-top rope motion, waves it off, gives Flair's belt back. So that was the first time I had seen that version of the false finish. Huh. Well, that would become a staple. (laughs) Well, I mean, because I don't think... Dusty Booking had become so bad at that point. I don't believe we had reached the point where you had a rough bump and you started seeing the crowds looking towards the back, as well, no. what, what would happen in, in Crockett by the time, by, you know, the end of the Dusty era in 88, where everybody, all of Dusty tropes had been played out, I guess, it's fair to say. Yeah. So then the main event, the actual main event main event, was Dusty and Animal in a cage uh, over Ole and Arn. And I think when you look at the card, while it was a good show, I would dare say when you looked at it on paper, you could probably would have guessed most of those matches. You know Dusty's going to win the main event because he's Dusty. You know, Flair's actually not going to lose his belt. You know, Baby Doll is going to get revenge on Cornette. Then you had, you know, the faces win all of the stipulation matches, and then the heels won on the undercard. So, certainly an enjoyable show, but I don't, I don't recall it, you know, it being infamous other than just being the first show and all the stuff that happened behind the scenes. It wasn't worthy of a stadium. Just as simple. It well, wasn't. I guess, 
Yeah, I mean, like we we talked about the incidents earlier that it would have eclipsed what they normally held in the civic center, but not by that much. And yeah, you know, and as was as would be a state which we probably already seen by Starcade. Why not run the spec? Well, yeah, can't run the spec. Yeah, can't run the spectrum. <laughs> so, I mean, here's, I mean, if they're going to run a stadium, why not Franklin Field? Well, that'd have been I even worse. Well, that'd have been even worse because Franklin Field. Oh, you okay? I, you Franklin Field? I, for a second, I thought you meant JFK, and I'm like, no, that would be even worse than running the vet. But yeah, I mean, there probably were smaller, mid-sized stadiums in philadelphia well franklin field definitely would have you know had a better aesthetic too um yeah i mean that that would work but again i just if you're gonna just uh, it's, it's, it was basically for the clout you know of running stadiums you know wwf wasn't running stadiums really at that time not like that and they would <laughs> it, i mean they would run in toronto you know in late in august and did make a business, but you know, it just it's too much, too much, too much. Well, even some, you know, in '86, in '86 was was probably the best year of Jim Carter Promotions in that, you know, in that. I mean, it's Dusty's best year, definitely as, as the Booker, as far as television goes, and they did, you know, did great business, but. Trying to do that in these cities in particular, and that's where the mainly the stadium shows were, were in the Northeast and in, in cities that they didn't normally run in like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it just it wasn't it wasn't a smart play. I mean, Charlotte, yeah, they drew twenty three thousand fans in Charlotte. That's Charlotte, you know. But the Liberty Bowl, nineteen hundred, was announced. In Memphis, nineteen hundred at the Liberty Bowl on July fourth. You know, um, they ran Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati on July 9th. Thirty nine hundred paid. Um, Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, only ten thousand fans. Uh, Cle- Cleveland Stadium uh, during it was after an Indians game, so no attendance listed. You really can't count it because it was after an Indians game. Um, you look, and, but you look at that though. I mean, Legion Stadium in Wilmington, North Carolina. They normally ran that place. It's only two thousand. That really don't count. It's a, it's a, a place they ran. Twelve thousand fans, Fulton County Stadium. They drew more than twelve thousand the Omni. So, come on, it was it, it was a bomb. Yeah, according to Cornette's book, he says. 14 bash events, grossing over 1.9 million with nine gate records and two sellouts. Non-bash events in the month drew about 575,000 with four gate records and six sellouts. For a month's total of 2.5 million gross, 13 gate records and eight sellouts. Which sounds good on paper, but it's like the sellouts were probably all the smaller buildings or parts of the regular tour loop and then even if you mean yes you know like we said washington was disappointing but it was still technically a gate record 
Well, you, but, I mean, you look at you look at where they sold out. Okay, I mean, they sold out. Uh, as I go down the list, they sold out Dorton Arena in Raleigh. They sold out Spartanburg Memorial Auditorium. They sold out uh, uh, Legion Stadium in Wilmington, ten, uh, Limestone College in Gaffney, Township Auditorium in Columbia. Um, they they only did eighty five hundred in Baltimore. That's a light crowd for them there. They uh, sold that Greenville. They sold that uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Freedom Hall in Johnson City, Greensboro Coliseum. Um, yeah, the, I mean. Yeah, just the fact that they drew 8,500 in Baltimore is something. Because they, they would draw 10,000 in Baltimore. I mean, that's not the that's not the greatest crowd for them in Baltimore. And that was with uh, a main event of Dusty and Rock and Rolls against Rick Ole and Arn, an elimination match with Road Warriors and Midnight's underneath and Magnum and Nikita. I mean, they had the big matches, but 8,500, I mean... February twentieth, they sold up with thirteen thousand fans. You know, so. Well, the weird thing about Baltimore is that it technically wasn't a bash show; it was just a house show. And you got to wonder. You would have you would have thought, most of those people that went in Baltimore would have gone. To Washington to see them in in there, but, you know, they didn't. It's weird. Well, of course. As as Mike can tell you that the, the weird Baltimore Washington rivalry sometimes, but it's like you would think Crockett diehards would would have gone to both shows if they could have. Yeah, and it's weird that Baltimore didn't get a bash show. I guess maybe you know maybe they couldn't get into Memorial Stadium since it was in the middle of baseball season. But awesome. but it's weird that I mean maybe you know I'm a diehard and you know I you know I've driven all over the place to see shows, but you would think, especially given how, what a great market Baltimore would become for Crockett and probably already was by that point, you know, that, that, that Washington didn't do better or that they didn't do like a combined Baltimore, Washington bash or something like that. Yeah. But I'm sure there was probably technical reasons for that. But yeah, it's, I mean, certainly 86 was the most successful of the, I guess, the three years that they did the bash. But, yeah, I mean, when you look at the records, it's definitely diminishing returns every year. 88? I mean, the bash 88 did pretty damn good, too. No, I talked about that. But, uh, I mean, it really did. But it just wasn't a creative part. See, I said that creatively, it's you know, 86. But yeah, it was. And like I said, and people, I think there, I believe there are at least, if you have the network, I believe the two of the Carolina shows are on the network now. I had to, I had to double check with one of my friends that has a network, and I was like. The Philly show isn't on the network, is it? And he's like, no, it's the, I think, Greensboro and Charlotte. So I was like, okay. So people can at least get a flavor of the bash. And there was, this probably exists somewhere, but there there was there was a bash videotape, which I didn't remember until I was doing my research because I'm surprised that I didn't buy it if there was one because I know 
Oh yeah, I used to rent that tape. At, I had, uh, yeah, because because I had bought the Crockett Cup tape that would have been out already by then, and I think we eventually I think we bought the Starcade tape. No, yeah, yeah, I had bought the Starcade '85 tape and the Crockett because there's the like super handmade looking where they just come in the clamshell with uh with like the the paper cover and no artwork or anything and i think it's just like a blank videotape inside that just has like bash 85 or crockett 86 on the label it's not it certainly wasn't your slick packaged coliseum home video from that era but you know for those of us who were who were team NWA over team WWF. I think we were just happy for any kind of merchandise that we could get. Well, I mean, and you're in that part of the country where, I mean, it really was a kind of a wrestling war between Crockett and WWF when anywhere else at that time, that Baltimore, DC area, Philadelphia and that whole little area was just a, a battleground in this in this time period where they were going head to head and and especially in Philadelphia, uh, Crockett was beating them on occasions. So yeah, yeah it's interesting, interesting time in that part of the world in wrestling. Yeah, and as people who have heard Mike and I talk about this, the uh, I mean, I'm sure it was probably the same everywhere, and I know you famously had wrestling saturation on TV down there. But like at this point in 86, around this time, we probably had, you know, over 10 hours of wrestling probably on over the air TV here that you had like both WWF shows, both Crockett shows, AWA had a show. We had the UWF by then we had, World class, which we could get off, uh, depending on what kind of antenna you had. The uh, their world class was on the uh, was on the religious station in York. Well, well, home team sport. I mean, you guys had home team sports, and home team sports was carrying a lot of wrestling. But in nineteen, yeah. But for me, nineteen eighty six, I did not have cable yet. Oh, okay. So I'm t- so. Uh, I was like, we did not have cable, but I was lucky that we had a rotor on our antenna. Yeah, that helped. So, well, where I grew up, we were pretty much equidistant between Baltimore and Philly. So, depending on which way we turned the rotor, we could watch Baltimore TV and Philadelphia TV. So, not only was I, not only could I watch two, four, six, seven, eight shows in each of the markets, I could watch them over again in the other market, depending on when time overlapped. And like I said, we got world class because world class was on one of the 700 club stations. Mm-hmm. So they showed world class and even showed the best of world class show. And then I think probably by the time I got to college, one of the UHF stations in Philly had started airing lots of the out-of-market stuff, I guess sort of similar to what you famously had there and there with that wrestling block in Atlanta. Except, I think in Philly, it wasn't all jammed on the weekend. They actually had, I think it was like at 10 or 11 at night, 
they had like an hour of wrestling every night of the week, but from all over the place. Yeah. But you guys down there probably had, famously probably had like the best television in the country with that, with the Petticino block. Yeah, and, you know, I was able to, see, I live between Atlanta and Macon, so I was able to get Macon television, too, to get some other wrestling I, Atlanta didn't have, like, uh, worldwide, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and there was some other wrestling, too, there, and Macon didn't air here, so, yeah, we, we definitely had our share of wrestling television, well over 10 hours a week. Yeah, it was like, I think the only thing that we never got up here was, like, the definitely, like, the Southern promotions. Like, I don't ever recall on regular TV seeing Memphis or Continental or even Florida. I mean, I know Florida was on cable in places, but like I said, we didn't have cable because I didn't see Memphis until 1988 when I went to college when they started being put on FNN score, that was like the first time, which I never got. That was during the, during that time. I know eventually we got to see Memphis on there. And at some point, I don't remember what year, but eventually Polynesian pro was on FNN score. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember seeing that it was just, that was very strange. It's like being, you know, in Southern Indiana and suddenly getting, Hawaii wrestling on your TV because it it would it wouldn't be for a couple of years that I became like a tape trader and a sheet reader. So at that point it was just you know what you got was what you got. So yeah, that was that was weird, definitely. But uh, one of the things I figured I would ask you since while I have you here is your vast podcast empire. (laughs) The main question would just be, Chris, how do you actually manage to record all of these shows? (laughs) Um, Just got to find the time to do it. And, uh, you know, I mean, Between the Sheets is a multi-day recording. So although we first started it, we did it in all in one day. That sucked. So we knew we had to change, change that. Um, so that, I mean, that's the number one on the on the on the list of uh, the shows to take care of because that's got to be every week. So that one takes precedent of everything else. Um, then I have, you know, uh, cover the cover with Rob Naylor, which I started up talking about wrestling magazines. We just we do that whenever Rob and myself both are able to do it. He's got he's got things he does, and of course you know I have all my schedules. So you know we just do that on convenience level. Uh, the pay window, of course, the new show I got with Dylan Hales talking about the history of NWSSWCW starting with uh, 1989, January 1989. Uh, that's a once a month show, so that's already locked in. It's going to be once a month, so we just find the time to record that. Um, and then get that out there whenever he has a, a chance to record and I have the chance to record with him. So as long as our schedules match, we get done. So, that, but that's set, that's a set deal. So we got that. And then, um, 
Exile on Bad Street, you know, my the first show, my my show, uh, that I do. I just whenever the opportunity arises and I can uh, get one knocked out and all the various, you know, theme shows that I do. So there's that. Plus, I do reaction shows on uh, PlaceBeNation.com for the big WWE shows. So and that's usually once a month or whatever. So yeah. <laughs> it's a lot that goes into it, man. I mean, between the sheets is normally three three recording sessions. Plus, between the sheets Patreon show. Like I forget that that's once a month too, and that's multiple days. So, I mean, recording with you right now. This makes the fourth consecutive day I've been I've recorded this podcast, and then I'll be recording the day after this too. So that's five straight, five straight days. Luckily, we are not. Luckily, luckily, this is not a uh, between the sheets length podcast. So, and I'm probably gonna be recording some between the sheets stuff tonight. Later on, as we record this. So, yeah, I ain't free. I ain't free from that. So, I mean, it's it is what it is, and uh, you know, I enjoy it. So, hopefully, the day will come that that won't be the case. So. As long as, as long as as long as it's fun and it's you know great to do, then I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I I've always I've always put you and you and Bix over for for the stamina for doing that show because it's like I I'm I'm one of those people that try to shoot for the 45 minute to an hour optimum time for a podcast and occasionally go long when. I have somebody on and we get talking and can't stop. It's like when, when, when Bo was on a couple of weeks ago, I think we did, I think close to a two hour show and then I stopped recording and then we talked for another two hours. It's oh, like, I mean, the, whenever we do between the sheets of Bo James, I mean, the post show sometimes can, can go very, very long. So that, I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, I I tend to do that when when simps on too because it's like because oh, my that's good yes yeah we we always lapse into talking about like eighties Maryland television stuff and it never fails no matter we could be talking about something completely unrelated and it'll come back to and you can tell when we have this shorthand where we don't even we just go by the numbers. And we know exactly what we're talking about. It'll be like, did you watch that on 45 or 54? Or was it on 50? And it's like, yes. We we know all of our Maryland independent television stations from from the 1980s. Probably can't do that even, anymore. Not even with people locally, because people don't even have the same channels on their TV, depending if they have cable or satellite or what package they have. It's like... I know I can't, that happens when I I go into some place to eat and I ask them to put a game on, and they're like, "Do you know what channel that's on?" And I'm like, "I know what channel that that's on at home. I don't know what number it is <laughs> here because I crossed the yeah. state line. I'm in Pennsylvania, so I don't know what it is on your cable system." Yeah, exactly. That's a <laughs> yeah, it ain't, it ain't on the same channel as where you're at. That's for sure. And I know you often talk about growing up that you watched wrestling on the big satellite dish. 
Yeah, my brother had one. Yes. Yeah, I was yeah. one of those. Yeah, I'd always. I was one of those people. Who, like every so often, I would talk to my dad, and I'd be like, "So, what do you think?" You know. But you know, we no. But it was like every year or so, I would be like, you know. But I think having the rotor on the antenna was sort of the close because I remember we could. On a good day, we could actually watch stuff from Jersey if the weather was right. Because I think I mentioned this to Les Thatcher when we talked to him a couple of weeks ago. It's like I told him the first time I remember seeing him on TV was when he worked for the Savoldis. And I somehow managed to find that TV sometime in the late 80s. And I just remember... I, um, I just remember it was so different because, you know, it wasn't one of the normal promotions. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember how much coverage they usually got in the after mags back then. But it was always weird when you would, like, flip around and see wrestling but not recognize where it was from or who was on there. Yeah, I used to, uh, I mean, I go over there sometimes on Sundays just to watch the NFL games because, I mean, that was the days when you could just, you know – there was no NFL Sunday ticket, and then that just to work on the satellite, you just find where it was at, and boom, you can watch the games. They're you know mainly commercial free, and you hear all the chatter, you know, during the commercial breaks and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was an interesting time for sure. Yeah, it's weird. We could watch, we could get like five games on a Sunday here because, like I said, we got Baltimore TV yeah. and Philadelphia TV, so. Whichever network had the double header, we could watch. And then, because of where we were, we also got the Lancaster TV, which which was NBC, which had the AFC then. So, usually on, like, at 1 o'clock, we could watch the Colts and the Eagles and the Steelers all at the same time. Yeah, see, that's one thing with me, you know, having the making TV, you know, the Falcons, we blacked out a lot during my childhood because they didn't sell out. So uh, I could watch them on making television and have whatever game aired in the Atlanta area as well, along with, of course, the NBC affiliate. So, yeah, I mean, that's one good thing about living in a, in a, like a centralized location, I guess. You have some advantages. Yeah, that's why I always tell people about here is that while you're in the middle of nowhere, you're equidistant from everywhere. So growing up, it was an hour to Baltimore, an hour to Philly, an hour and a half to Washington, like uh, 45 minutes to Wilmington, half hour to Lancaster, you know, two hours and change if you're lucky to get to New York. So... You know, it was good. In a way, it was better because you could go there and then come back, and you weren't just living in the suburbs. You were living out in the middle of the country. Although, been in the country so long, the suburbs have 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 sprawled out to where I live, where people that live in Philly and people that work in Philly and Baltimore actually have houses here now, and they commute every day. Yeah. Exactly. Know how that is? Got people, all people that live in Dunmanica, the woods, I'll try, you know, go to work in either Macon or somewhere near Atlanta. Yeah. Cool. Well, Chris, I want to thank you 
very much for for taking the time, as we said, in your very very busy schedule, to to hop mm, on with no us. No problem. No problem at all. Glad to be on. And like I said, we've given we we sort of already covered your plugs already. If they, I would say if if there's anything else you want to mention, please feel free. Well, you can uh, see you follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellman, K R I S Z E L O N E R. BT Sheets Pod at BT Sheets Pod. That's the between the sheets Twitter account where you'll get all the uh, shows when they drop and the links to the shows on our Red Circle page. So uh, there's that, and you could go to uh, you go to the website as well that uh, take you directly there between the sheets pod.com. I'll take you to the Red Circle page. Um, my I got a little sports account that I got now on Twitter to post old sports pictures, videos, what have you. At Old School Sports, O L S K O O L Sports. So check that out, and uh, and yeah, that's really about it right now. So um, yeah, just just you can keep track of me that way. I'll say the one thing that we don't have to plug anymore that uh, is I don't know how long it's been since you stopped, but you used to be the man who did the lucha who did all the lucha results and all the lucha yeah posters. That, uh, that 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 was one thing i had to give up uh i could not do that in podcast i tried it was killing me so um i had to give that one up i had to give that one up for sure and uh but alfredo took that up uh alfredo spars at luchaworld.com and i'll always plug him so he does it there, and all my old stuff sh- is still up on the website. And it's been almost four years now since I last did that, but it's up there, you know. And uh, all the stuff he does, he does a tremendous job on everything he, that he does. So he's more than picked up the slack in that way. So I'm always love Fredo. I'll say the good thing. I'll just say between Fredo and Cubs and Rob, luckily, and and others like. There, there's still plenty of places to get your lucha if you watch lucha. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, Cubs fan, of course, is the pretty much the be all end all. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you if you love lucha, there are places to find it for sure. So, if we ever get lucha. There's, not, there's nobody really. I mean, there's not that much of a scene right now. But uh, when the, when there is, and when it comes back, then yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say it's not like there's any lucha to cover right now, other than the no. occasional the occasional empty arena show that pops up on someone's YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, before we, I, I guess I should. The reason I was going to have you on when we first started talking about trying to find time was when I was doing my Splendid Isolation series during, well, the first. I guess we can say the first lockdown. But while I was off work, I guess I should say, and you were extremely busy, that oh. uh, we we had uh, we had folks on recommending stuff to watch um, if you did not if you were not interested in the, the current products. So I was going to have you on to maybe talk about. Well, you have such a vast library, you could pretty much talk about anything. But uh, I was going to I think I was going to ask you about. I think I was going to ask you about Georgia. Like, is there any any old Georgia in particular that you would recommend to people? Is it probably like the '82 era? Would that say? Would that be the pretty the much place? everything? 
I mean, I mean, um, you go to my YouTube channel at uh, ChrisZ891979, and um, all the stuff I have, my collection that wasn't already up on YouTube is there. And that's, but you know, and that's mainly a lot of early '80s stuff. And I did it the best way. I mean, I procured all that stuff from different people, and I probably have uh, the best collection of anybody online in that way because I got it from people that are not even in the business anymore as far as selling tapes, which you know nobody sells tapes anymore. But uh, all that stuff, and I actually got it to the date and got it kind of in chronological order. So, um, yeah, there's some really rare stuff, Georgia stuff on there. So I recommend that. And there, and you know, there's been some other stuff been put up over the years, but other stuff on my channel, you know, whether it's Lucha or uh, Memphis, got a lot of rare Memphis up there and uh, some other stuff like that. I mean, that's what I would recommend. Definitely watch the Georgia stuff. It's some of the best wrestling TV you'll see. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's so much stuff now for people to watch. That's, I mean, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do that series was just, you know, no matter sort of what area you're interested in, there's plenty of stuff that people haven't seen, whether it's, whether it's Lucha, whether it's Japan, or whether it's the territories from what we have, you know, and, and as we've now seen in the last couple of weeks, you know, stuff randomly pops up now online that you would never expect. I mean, I think we were all thrilled, and I talked less about this, when that episode of Southeastern showed up a couple of weeks ago from 1978, out of the blue, that, you know, Les said was apparently a copy of a master somebody had in Kentucky that he had in his collection that that they uploaded. And, it, you know, it was great, you know, it's... You got to see Hickerson and Condry and Ron Wright and a couple other people, and that was just like this this hidden gem that you know nobody was certainly expecting. And then, boom, it just shows up one Saturday afternoon. Yeah, yeah, you just never know sometimes uh, what uh what get what gets out there and what gets found. Absolutely, it's a blessing, that's for sure. Cool. Well, Chris, uh, thanks again for doing Thank the you. show and everybody can uh like i said listen to all your podcasts i would definitely i mean well i would recommend everything but definitely people should go back and listen to old episodes of exile and now that they're all well i don't want to say done but you can listen to stretches like when you did themes you could get like all four or five episodes that you did with Bo talking about continental or you know, the four or five episodes that you did with Barry Rose talking about Florida in the 70s or, you know, the stuff with Scott talking about Memphis. So I would definitely, for people interested in a particular area, you've, you had some of the best people on to talk about those parts of the country. And so if your knowledge is lacking in a particular territory, I would definitely recommend people go back and listen to those. Yeah, they were they, all those shows are good shows, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, try to try to learn up on stuff. It's 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 always good to to discover new things if you haven't uh, tried it out. Thanks again, Chris. Um, like I said, people stay tuned. We should have another segment coming up after this with my friend 
Jim, who went to the Philadelphia Bash with me in 1986. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It's taken 90 episodes and almost five years, but I'm finally going to pull a Simmons and have one of my childhood friends on the show. We talked about the Great American Bash card with Chris in the first part of the show, and I said that my friend Jim uh, went with me and my parents to the show. And would you know, we have my friend Jim on the line to talk about what he remembers about that and some other things that we can talk about. So how's it going? It's going well. It's, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's going well. You know, I just uh, out here living the dream. I was say, it's like when, uh, when I told you about this the other day, and I was like, you know, this, this show was 36 years ago. It's like, if that doesn't make us feel old, uh, like, we, I don't feel old. I mean, I feel old already anyway, now that, now that we're both 50, but, uh, when you start hearing stuff was 36 years ago, it puts things in perspective. Absolutely. It's it's incredible. It doesn't seem like that long. I mean, I don't remember a lot of the matches from the card, but what I do remember is pretty vivid. It doesn't seem like it should have been that long. Yeah, this was, uh, to, to give people some of the backstory, uh, for better or worse, you were the person that got me involved in watching. And I didn't, I, if people have listened to the pod over the years, they know that I did not start watching until I was a teenager. So I often feel like I have a different perspective looking at the business than a lot of people I know who started watching when they were kids. And so that that's always right. sort of colored how they watched the business. And so I think, you know, I was, you know, 14 or 15 when I started watching, so I already knew the deal. And uh, so could appreciate it for what it was. And, you know the bigger than life and comic books come to life and blah, 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 and all this stuff. But, uh, so this was, sure. I think this was the third card that you and I had gone to in the, in, in, in the year before we had gone to see a WWF show in Baltimore, which right. uh, looking at that card, the only thing I really remember is that Hogan and Snooker were in the main event. And the rest of the show is actually right. pre- the, the rest of the card is pretty forgettable. Um, then a couple months later, in the beginning of 1986, we went to a sh- an NWA show in Baltimore, which had you know all of the big matches that you would expect, plus some of the that was during the Pro Wrestling USA time. So we, in addition to like Hogan and or uh, Flair and Dusty and the Warriors and the Russians and the Midnights and the Rock and Roll. We also there was also Bockwinkle and Zabisco were on that card and Hanson wrestled Slaughter. So in theory, that's a pretty nicely stacked right. house show. And then we went to the and then we went that to the bash. Yeah, and then we went to the the bash in Philadelphia in July. Um, in the first part of the show, Chris and I ran down the card already and. It is sort of a fairly nondescript card. I mean, I, don't, I remember it being good, but really the only things that I remember are the the Midnight Express and the Rock and Rolls with Baby Doll and Cornette, and then 
the the Magnum and Nikita in the first of the best of the seven matches, and then the Flair Hawk title match, and we talked about the goofy dusty finish in that match. But what what do you remember about right. going to the show? I remember we were talking earlier. I remember the bloodbath. Wahoo McDaniel busted open, blood everywhere. I remember that because that was the first time I'd seen blood in person. You know, you see it on TV or you see it on tapes and that kind of thing, but it was the first time I'd ever seen it live. So I thought that was kind of amazing for a young kid. Um, I remember, I remember your disappointment when Midnight Express lost. I remember that. Although um, not surprising. No, not surprising at all. Um, and I remember the Nikita match only because I was a closet Nikita fan. I have no idea why, but I was also, you know, I was also that guy that liked all the, the baby faces anyway. So I wasn't upset that Magnum lost, but deep down I, I had that joy that Nikita won. So that was interesting. Although you did tend to favor, um, if I remember right, you liked generally, you liked a lot of uh, big strong guys. Because I know Snooker was I did. Snooker was your number one guy, but I think if I remember right, like Kerry Von Erich was was right up there too. So that all like, sort of yeah, that's all sort yeah, of I makes like sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like the muscular wrestlers when I was younger, and then I I also like those uh, quick guys, the the quick tag teams, and you know Rock and Roll Express, Fabulous Ones, those kind of groups. Um, I didn't really care for the slow plotting giants or anything like that, like a Jerry Blackwell or Andre the Giant. I wasn't too big on those guys. Whereas, not not surprisingly, I was almost immediately, uh, instantly a heel fan. You know, starting oh, yeah. with, starting yep. with Cornette, and I remember I remember briefly liking Dusty, but not for very long. So that <laughs> so. Like as time went on, yeah. I'm, you know that doesn't surprise me. But it is funny that I sort of instantly kind of soured on him, not very quickly, without even knowing that he was the Booker right. or anything. I probably, I think we may have eventually pieced together because you know we're talking about the mid '80s, so there's no sheets or anything like that. I mean, we had the magazines, but that was about it. Right. But uh, yeah, you know, once once you start realizing how much of the show was built around Dusty. How guys not even involved in Dusty's angles talked about Dusty, and it's like you know enough already. So to then right. learn, you know that he was the Booker, you know, then it all made sense in the end. <laughs> right. Well, he was in almost every main event and and that kind of thing. Absolutely. What uh, What's interesting to me is I, you know, when we were talking about this card, I showed my son to also watch wrestling you know, sporadically. I showed him the card. And they were looking at all seven nights, and they were like, it seems like it's the same matches. I don't get it. How could you watch these guys fight over and over again? And for me, it's interesting because, you know, nowadays with the product, it's feuds are pay-per-view to pay-per-view. I think Dusty and Flair and Dusty and the Horsemen fought each other. God, it seemed like my entire childhood. So well, at least, yeah, well, at least there you could mix and match. So, I mean, when you have stable yeah. feuds, you can mix it up where Dusty feuded for a couple months with Flair, and then he would segue into feuding back with Tully, and then he could feud with Arn, and then he could go back sure. to feuding with Flair again. So you could keep the core, 
feud going, whether it was Dusty and Magnum or Dusty and Manny or Dusty, you know, Dusty and Luger and Dusty and Wyndham, you know, and then you've got guys flip flopping. So then they become opponents instead of partners and vice versa. But, well, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, and again, people, people watching the modern product, you know, who don't know how the territories worked where, Either A, guys went around the loop with each other, and so they got so familiar with each other, they were they would have better matches because they were used to each other. Or you have the thing right. where guys work, conversely, guys work the same towns every week, and so A, you don't fight the same guy over and over, and B, you can't. You can't do what they do now and have the same match on every house show as if you're performing a play. It's like if we, you know, if we went to Baltimore, exactly. I mean, well, you know, Baltimore wasn't, but, you know, like if we had been in, uh-huh. we were a little farther south and we were in Richmond and, and Norfolk, you know, we would have seen Flair and Steamboat Russell all the time. And if we watch them week after week, right. they can't have the same match. So you learn how right. to be different, which is, you know, that's the thing where people always accuse Flair of having the same match. And that really didn't start happening until he became world champion. And then he started going different places. And you don't always, you know, you don't get to work against Rick Steamboat every night in every territory. And especially right. once he started, once he started wrestling the big green muscle heads, it's like, it certainly was a lot easier for him to have the same formula of a match where he does the same thing. And he knows right. that Nikita is limited and he knows that sting is good, but limited. So let's do right. the same things same over and Luger over. And, those other guys, yeah. and Luger and Luger too. Yeah. So, you know, but when flair was in mid Atlantic, he, that, pro, you know, yes, he did guess he did his signature spots, but he certainly wasn't doing the same match every night. That's sort of, again, that's another problem of judging people solely by what we have left on video. And yes, there's a lot of flair from the early eighties left and even some from the seventies, but you know, we don't have the preponderance of his weekly footage until, you know, we're starting to get into this, this repetitive era. Right. No, absolutely. But, you know, it's just, in a way, we're, you know, it's a shame that there's, you know, certain places, you know, we don't have the footage of. You know, luckily, we have most of the Crockett footage from, you know, I guess if you look at what's on the network, you know, you you have almost everything from like 81, 82 onward, more or less. You know, and we have. No, they do. They the uh you know like we have more or less everything from mid south we have lots of stuff from memphis and we have lots of stuff from georgia but you know there's florida is kind of sporadic continental is definitely sporadic mm-hmm. you know and then you know they, of course you know vince they have a has good, everything uh, selection but... of world class stuff and see the end the great thing about back from uh no, I was just saying back from the Von Eric here. They have a lot of that uh, stuff, but uh, 
you know, it's kind of buried. You have to look for it, but it is on the network, and it is, I don't know, it is, it's a nice thing to go back and look at. Well, the especially thing, after trying to watch what they put on TV today. Yeah. Well, luckily I don't watch it, so I don't have to worry about that. Um, but like the funny thing with world class is, uh, you know, I mentioned this in the first part of the show that we got, we were lucky to get world. I mean, despite the fact that we're living in rural Maryland, you know, we actually got the world class mm-hmm. TV because it was shown on one of the 700 club stations up in Pennsylvania that we got. Over the, you know, since we're still talking yeah, about 43, I think it was. You know, or, yeah, 43. So, and then eventually they started showing not only the regular world-class show, but the the quote-unquote legends of world-class show, which, because, you know, we would, this when we started watching world-class would have been like in the, in the Chris and Gino era. But, you know, they were showing yeah. stuff from like 82, 83. So we were seeing like a lot of the prime Freebird stuff and a lot of guys who had gone on to other places. I mean, I remember the, you know, some of the Gary Hart and Armand Hussein guys were in those old tapes or when the Irwins were still the super destroyers in Texas and things like that, you know, and by the time in the present, you know, they were already by then in the AWA as the long riders. So it's like, you know, as two dumb kids, I don't think we would have put together that these were the Irwin brothers. Right. No, we wouldn't have. No. And I remember, what was it? I remember Iceman Parsons from World Class. I don't know why I liked him so much, but I just, I don't know why he sticks in my head, but I remember watching for him when we would watch that show on Channel 43. Before that went downhill with Lance Von Eric, and they had to bring him in. Well, and manufacturer of Von Eric, that was pretty bad. Well, the whole, I mean, you know, when you look back at it now, certainly the whole Fritz's decision to leave the NWA and become his own company was, I mean, I guess by then the diets were had been cast anyway since Crockett had been monopolizing Flair, but it's like, you know, the, the world class was, you know, one of the premier territories in the country, and by then it was certainly a shell of itself because, you know, once you started, because I think by then, I think Mike had also died. So, yep. you know, you had already, you know, you were down that slippery slope of that company and Gino had already died. So it was, it was, I mean, there were some bright spots in that era before, before they brought, before Jarrett brought it, bought it. But, you know, yeah, it was still, it was, you know, it shows that in wrestling that, like, the wrong talent and the wrong booking can, like, quick, can kill a territory as quickly as you can make it get hot. You're absolutely right. The, uh, absolutely. the other thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about, um, and as we mentioned, um, your favorite wrestler growing up when we were watching all this as teenagers was Jimmy Snuka. And and I'm going to right. out you and mention that your first car had a Jimmy Snuka personalized license plate. <laughs> yes, it did, Snuka. But uh, brown Mustang. So now, in hindsight, now that we know, now that we've all yeah. seen that dark—I mean, we knew this anyway—but now that everyone has seen that Dark Side of the right. Ring episode, 
is like, the, how conflicted are you now about your teenage? I mean, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, wrestling has always been and still is, you know, a very carny sort of not too pleasant business. And, you know, I was lucky that, you know, I briefly worked in and I wasn't a wrestler or anything, but, you know, nothing, t- you know, I lost a couple hundred dollars by getting scanned, but, you know, that was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. But, you know, it's it's right. such a seedy business, like, that we kind of knew then, but, you know, and then certainly over the years, you know, you learn most, you know, almost all the famous, you know, you know almost all the famous sleaze stories and things like that. But it's like, you know, now that you're confronted again as as a 50-year-old man knowing that as a teenager, you know, your favorite wrestler is someone who killed or uh, right. led in – whether it was murder or manslaughter or however you want to phrase it, but the, that you now know. And I just wondered, like, how conflicted your memories are now. It's tough because, you know, on one hand, he's the wrestler that got me into watching. You know, it was the, the hour shows on Fox – well, no, it wasn't Fox back then, but Channel 45. They'd always save him to the end. He's a guy that's jumping off the top rope in an era where not many people in the States were doing a lot of high-flying stuff. So that got me hooked. So I had that, you know, that childhood love and just wanting to be like him and wanting to be a high-flyer. But, I, you know, I'm only 5'6", so, so much for that. But, uh, you know, and then, you know, as you get older, it amazed me when I watched that dark side of the ring, how that was just all, I don't remember hearing anything about that when I was a young guy. Um, nothing about his, I mean, there were rumors about his girlfriend dying, but how they could cover that up or at least sweep it under the rug. That's the part that shocks me is how it didn't get out. But, uh, after watching that dark side of the ring, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, this was a, I mean, I don't want to say murder, but it was a murder. I mean, it, it, the dark side of the ring really kind of presented the evidence in a way where it's hard to question you know, his role in that. So it's hard, it's tough, but, you know, when you watch the old matches, I can still feel myself, you know, wanting him to do well like I did as a kid. But the adult in me, you know, it's rough. It's, it is a conflict. Well, I think that it is a conflict because it's, well, you know, I don't know if you remember, but I had posters in my bedroom, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's hard, but, you know, again, it just it alters it alters the way in the end you view his legacy, but when you see the matches, it's still there's little sparks that are still there of wanting to cheer. Well, there's this whole thing now about sort of cancel culture and all this kind of stuff where it's becoming increasingly harder in whatever form of pop culture you're talking about, whether you're talking about wrestling or comics or TV or whatever. Yeah you know, to separate the art from the artist where it's like, do you feel, it's like, okay, do you feel guilty watching Jimmy Snooker wrestle? Okay. Do you feel guilty watching Woody Allen movies? Do you feel guilty watching Roman Polanski movies? You know, do you feel guilty about what, you know, you know, pick any sport and any athlete that's done something bad you know, whether it's drugs or spousal abuse or whatever. And, you know, everybody has their own line. 
and it's sort of like how you know what can you tolerate and what can you say i just can't watch this anymore and you know and then it's even harder probably for people that are actually in the business because it's like it's like you want you know i think generally most smart fans love watching dick murdoch and you know you learn over time about his sort of you know clan history and then it's like well okay i can you know this was 40 years ago and yes that's bad but but then you have to wonder it's like it's like i can sort of compartmentalize this but it's like you know you wonder about like all the guys that he had to work with over like all the all the black guys that he worked with it's like you know yes he's a great worker but i know is what's he really thinking in his head while we're working and is he going to be as safe with me as he might be with somebody else because I know who he is and all things. So those are the kind of things that like, sometimes you have to wonder about. It's like while you're watching or watching a movie shit or, you know, you're reading comics or whatever, but it's just, you know, this, right. You know, and you know, and now it's, and even, you know, you have the thing now where, you know, we're we're pulling down statues of, it, you mm-hmm. know, it's one thing on a certain level to tear down the statues of, con, of Confederate generals. But like when you start, right. but then you start wondering, like, how far back is this desire going to go? It's like, OK, I can understand. I can rationalize tearing down the statues of Robert E. Lee or taking the names off Robert E. Lee. But it's like. Are people now going to stay? Should we take Jefferson's name off stuff? Are we going to take Washington's names right. off stuff? Yeah. You know, it's like you have to wonder where, where that line goes. The slope in, yeah, yeah. Well, as for Snooker, I, I, I don't know this for sure, but I believe they, you no longer can see him if you look up Hall of Famers on WWE's website. I think he was removed from that. I could be wrong. No. Uh, so they're, I think they're doing their part to kind of hide him because it's really hard to find his matches unless you go to uh you know the wrestlemania where he got crushed by the undertaker or you go on youtube well it's really hard to find anything with him well it's funny because i mean they made this you know they had this weird they had like sort of like the hardest dilemma with all the benoit stuff because it's like right you know for the longest time you know, he just, they just cut him out. You know, he was erased from history. But now, they've kind of gotten to the point where it's like, okay, we're not going to call out the fact that, you know, he has a world title match on this show. But we're not going to edit it off. We're just not going to say anything. Or we're, I don't even think they necessarily put disclaimers up anymore. It's sort of like, if you want to watch a Nitro yeah. from, like, 1998 and, like, Benoit's wrestling Eddie in that on that show, it's in there. They just they just don't publicize it. And, and so right. you, it's like... You don't want to be just promoting that kind of person, I get you. But then yeah. again, well, see, then there's, of course, here's the slippery slope. Okay, it's easy to erase Chris Benoit from WWF history because... Yes, he was in a couple famous matches, but really in the history of the company, he's kind of a footnote. 
Snuka is a bigger footnote. But, like, if you start going down that slope, well, Hogan is certainly a very tarnished figure these days. But can you imagine if they try yeah, and... Yeah, that's true. It's like they can't really exercise Hogan out of the history of that company. Because no. it would be... One, it would sort of belay the truth. And two, it's just... It would be near impossible. I mean, it would... It would be a Herculean effort that... It's, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of the thing where you have to just say, yes, he's a bad guy and... You kind of know. I mean, I sort of feel that way about, um, like old movies and cartoons and stuff. Where, you know, I don't think you hide them away in a vault and pretend they don't exist. You know, I think you do what Warner Brothers does now with a lot of their cartoons, where they put up, well, they put the thing on the front that says, you know, this is a historical document. This is from a time when social mores were different than they are now and we present this show what it was like and so people can learn from it. You know, right. rather no, than... that's a good idea. I mean... Yeah, so you don't cut out Bugs Bunny nips the nips or, mm-hmm. you know, characters in blackface. Now, you know, when you progress up the scale and you end up with Song of the South... You know, you kind of understand, you know, I mean, there's a reason, you know, Disney has like, hasn't released it in like 50 years, but, but it's funny, but for the longest time, you could, you could get it imported. I mean, I have an imported Song of the South Laserdisc from Japan, you know, in the nineties. So, I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily get that now. But, you know, now people want to take, you know, take zippity doo off Splash Mountain. And I think they have now. But, mm-hmm. you know, so... I th- yeah, they're replacing it with Princess or something. The Frog and, yeah, the Frog and Princess. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, do you... Hi- you know, it's like, I understand not putting it on the Disney Channel. But it's like, you know, you can't really pretend that it doesn't exist. Yes. And it, going back to Snooker, that that kind of thing, you know, it's probably something they should do. Because, I mean, just as far as we're just looking at wrestling, just the wrestling part of his life. I mean, he was a guy that, you know, got people like me. There were I wasn't the only one, you know, that just, you know, saw the guy, was enamored by the guy, and wanted to see the guy every week. And we would watch the hour show and hope that he came on. So, you know, I just think for the older shows, what you're saying is something that they should do. Yes, we you know acknowledge the fact that he may have been involved in murdering his girlfriend. However, that kind of a thing. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, and if people are like I said, I mean, I don't really go out of my way to watch Benoit matches anymore. But you know, if something comes up and it's on, I'm you know, if if it's something from like Japan where he's wrestling Liger, then you know I'd watch that. I don't know if I'll necessarily... I mean, I don't think I'd necessarily want to watch something from WCW where he's with Nancy. I think that might be a little too much to take. But, again, it's every, it's up to everybody to sort of compartmentalize what they are personally comfortable with. Right. Sure. And if you're so, not comfortable, you just hit that fast-forward button and go right by it. 
Yeah, so you said that you actually do watch the current pro do you watch do you watch WWF and um, and AEW or do you pick and choose? To, uh well, we don't watch Raw or SmackDown. My my sons are getting older, so they, they want to watch the pay per views, which is why we still have the network. We have been watching uh AEW a little bit. I'm trying to give it a chance. It's still I mean I think it's just in my opinion, I think it's better than what I see on Raw and SmackDown as far as storyline goes, but I don't know. It's still not as good in my mind as the stuff I used to watch when I was a kid. And I know I know we both separately went to the first NXT show that was here locally. Did you go to the other ones yeah, after that? Yeah. Yep, we went to, to every one because uh, I really enjoyed them. I, I thought they were really good shows. I kind of equated, I, I don't know what I would equate it with, but you know, these guys were, and gals were trying to make a name for themselves. So it just seemed to me like they were trying to put on a better show. Um, and the first show was good, but I thought the shows after that were even better. I think there were two more after the first one, um, just because they did more fan interaction, that kind of thing, coming out to the crowd, just getting the crowd riled up a little bit better. So I think they put on a good show, which is why whenever they do come to the community college, we go. Yeah, I went to the first one. After that, it was kind of like, eh. And I think it, it was sort of, yeah. it, it was largely based on who was actually on the shows, because I think the first show still had a lot of the big, when uh, when they still had a lot of the bigger name indie guys were still in NXT before they had gotten moved up yet. Like, I think Shinsuke yeah. was still in NXT at the first show, and I think Asuka was still at the first show. Yep. So rude, I think was on. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think and that's that's kind of a sorry, that's kind of a cool thing, at least for my kids, where they'd be like, "Oh my God, we saw them at Hartford Community College before they were big," you know, after, when they're on an actual pay per view. So, I mean, that's kind of a cool element. Yeah, I mean, that's how it used to be going to indie shows. I mean, that's what it was like going to indie shows. Like when I worked there, that it's like there's a bunch of those guys who you know went on. To be big, you know, to be quote unquote big TV wrestlers. So it's kind of cool that you know I knew them. I worked with them when they were just, you know, working for fifty bucks a night in a fire hall or, you know, a VFW. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were going to go to the second show because we thought we thought Andrade was going to be on the show, but then he ended up, I think, working like the other loop. So it was like, no, I'm glad I didn't go. Because it was like, he was, you know, because like Lucha is like the only modern stuff that I watch. And so, you know, he was a big star in Mexico. And so it would have been cool to get to see him. And it's sort of like, you know, we hadn't gone to a live show in a couple of years once we both went off to college, but we were home in 90 when, when Liger came in. And I was like, I'm like, you know, we got to go to this show because it's like, I may yeah, never get the chance to see Jushin Liger in person again. So I don't know if I have, but, uh, you know, that was certainly worth making the trip down there. Yeah. Yeah. But what we noticed is I think the first show, it was pretty, pretty well packed. I mean, they they had a lot of people in there. Each subsequent show seemed to have more and more empty seats. 
they they weren't selling out the last couple shows. That's for sure. Well, I'm sure by. And I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's because of the location. I mean, I mean, it took a lot of people a long time to get out of that small parking lot. The first, after the first show, it might have soured some people. But I don't know if it's the location or or what. But I did notice that after the first show, they kept referring to it as Baltimore, even though it's Bel. It was in Bel Air, you know. So I don't know yeah. if they were trying to entice more people to come. I, yeah, we used to joke. Sure. Yeah, we always. Yeah, we say now when those shows run, we call it we call it fake Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, yeah. because I mean, the only th- the only thing the only other shows that I can remember that locally in the recent past is TNA ran at Ripken Stadium once. Like. I guess now yeah, I would, remember that I, I didn't go, but yeah. Now I mean, but it would have been like eight or nine years ago, and you know I think I only went because sort of the novelty of seeing them this, you know, like this again, this close. It's like you know going to Baltimore or sure. Philly or occasionally in Wilmington. You know, we're like generally the closest times, or like the closest we've ever had. It's like I think all the times that I worked for MCW, I think we were in one show, like in Harford County at one of the high schools. But mm-hmm. you know, that was the closest they ever you said, came. You said MCW. Yeah, when I worked Is that for the them. Maryland Championship. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know you worked for them. I, they still uh, come to Joppa. Yeah, I um, like twenty years ago. I I had done an art when I when I used to write for the Whig, the the county newspaper here. Um, mm-hmm. I did a story on like local wrestling, quote unquote. Um, that. Like I went to down to see them, and I went to ECW, and I went to, I think I went to ECWA when when Jim Kentner still owned it. So just saying, hey, you know, wrestling's hot, and wrestling's also kind of local. Again, you know, Baltimore and Philadelphia and Wilmington as as close for us. Sure. So it was like yeah. I went down there and I wrote an article and I was like, hey, these guys are kind of cool. And, you know, and it was like a couple weeks later, I was like, I'm like, hey, you know, you guys don't have any programs. I'm like, you know, I could, you know, do something if you want, you know, just come down and, you know, get in, you know. So, I, you know, I would get to go backstage and hang out and talk to the guys. And, you know, occasionally I would be like the ring boy taking jackets back and. The highest I ever graduated up was I was time or I was timekeeper once at a show. Wow! The show that I got yelled at by King Kong Bundy. Um, <laughs> but which I think I think I told that I told that story on the podcast when I had Bo James on a couple of weeks ago. If you want to go back and listen, but uh, yeah, and you know, and then like, and then. When I moved to Virginia, you know, I stopped being able to go all the time. So, you know, it was like a year or two. But, you know, that's as close as being in the business I've ever been. So, 
Wow. It's closer than I was. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I had I, dreams, but it never happened. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I mean, most everybody was pretty nice. You know, like, I certainly don't have any horror stories. Like I said, I got yelled at once for doing something I didn't know I shouldn't do, which was funny. And, you know, I think I got, I think I got, I got, uh, I took like a chop once in the locker room. You know, that's sort of the most I was ever physically abused. And I wouldn't call that physically abused. I would just call that, we're standing around talking and one of the guys said, yeah, and then I hit the guy like this, wham. And I'm just sort of standing there and then I'm like, because <coughs> it was a, it was a big, a big meaty guy gave me a big meaty chop across the chest and I was just like, and then he's like, are you okay, brother? I'm like, yeah, I just wasn't expecting it. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. He's like, I probably shouldn't. He's probably like, if I'm telling that story, I probably shouldn't do it on like a guy who's not a worker. And I'm like, don't worry about it. But, you know, that's as close as I think I ever got. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I would have probably cried for a month. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was cool getting you on the phone, man. Yeah, it was good talking to you. I mean, it's been a long time. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I think I told, I think I might have told you this, and you might want to edit this out. But I, when my mom moved, my mom sold the house I grew up in and moved in with my sister. She was cleaning out closets and found a couple of these old one to a hundred lists. Asked me if I still wanted them, and it was crazy. I don't know if you remember those. No, I remember. I yeah, I I thought about something came up recently when I thought about that, and I was yeah. I, I, it's like I wonder like how how close my taste would probably mirror those. I have a feeling they probably would not be much different than they are now. Cause I have a feeling the people I like then I pretty much like now and the, other than the, sort of the the, 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 the people who I didn't get at the time, like I've, I, I, I right. told Bo this, I told Bo this because he's a friend of his, but I said, you know, I freely admit that when I started watching, I did not get Jimmy Valiant. It's like I do now. Especially now that I know his whole history. But at the time, it was just like, you know, again, I didn't like baby faces either. But, I mean, it was just like, why is this guy wasting time on my TV? And it's like, you know, now I can appreciate the whole package in his history and knowing how over he actually was and, you know, being Handsome Jimmy and the King and all the stuff in Memphis that I've now seen and... Like, now I understand. But at the time, I was just, you know, I wasn't necessarily always a moves guy. I mean, I probably was when I first started watching yeah. Japanese stuff. But, you know, I always, like I said, I always preferred heels. And in general, especially during that time, you know, heroes were generally the better workers because they had to carry the match and call the match, which, you know, I didn't necessarily understand at the time. No. But you know, I certainly no, and I know. I just I know my list would be completely different because, you know, the era where I started watching, I just rooted for all the good guys because that's what you did. You rooted for the good guys, you booed the bad guys. There were never any wrestlers with shades of gray. It was all cut and dry, good, bad. But now, when I watch with my kids, you know, that doesn't really factor in anymore. I just like to watch them in the ring and see what they do, watch their work, and go from there. So really the good, bad thing doesn't play a role anymore, which, gosh, when we used to do those lists, it was all about good. A simpler time. Yeah. 
Except for, I think I started like in the Horseman when Lex went there. I had a, I don't know, I had a, a liking for Lex, which I look back on and don't know why because he was stiff. But, you know, I I used to just, you know, hey, Lex Luger's in the Horseman now? All right. Yeah, but anyhow. Well, it's cool. Well, yeah, like I said, it was, it was cool talking to you and maybe... Maybe if if the situation arises, we'll have you back on again. Sure, no problem. Cool. That was uh, good talking to you. Good catching up. Yeah, like I said, have a have a good holiday. How's uh, how's uh, life been uh, in isolation? I don't know. If we can break kayfabe, I'll just say that that you are a teacher. So it must have been the whole lockdown yeah. thing. Must have been pretty strange for you guys. Oh my gosh, let me tell you, I do not like distance learning at all. I would much rather be in a classroom with kids. Teaching digitally is, oh my gosh, it's a headache. You know how you explain something once? Well, we couldn't use, they wouldn't let us use things like Zoom or Microsoft Teams because not every kid has access. So you had to do this, it's this interface called It's Learning. So we had to post all of our stuff on there. And in a classroom, you know, you get a question, you answer it once, maybe twice, maybe three times. Here, you're answering 35, 40 emails, you know, about the same thing, the same question. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait to get back. I'm sure. I'll even teach with a mask. I don't care. <laughs> cool. Well, hopefully yeah, hopefully things will turn around yep. reasonably soon. Um, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks again, Jim, yeah. for, for doing the show. No problem. Yeah, and we will talk to everybody. Hey, no problem. We will talk to everybody next time. 